Now, how many brokers it takes to screw in a light bulb? Uh, no comment on that. So one to drop it and the other to try to sell it before it crashes to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So I, I, I don't want to comment on exact numbers, but to give you an idea of where we are today, we only have 50 billion of spec length in commods. That is barely above the April 2020 lows despite a much, much tighter environment. That compares to 300, 400, maybe 500 trillion of global wealth, depending on how you define it. Yeah, so what I, I mean, I'm trying to do the mental maths there, that's like sub 0.1% of global portfolios. Yeah, I don't know what I don't know what the real weight should be, but it's probably a bit higher uh, than that <laughs> on a theoretical basis. I'm Patrick Pacheco, and you're listening to Season 2 of In Good Companies from Cadence Bank, the podcast where we guide you through the forces shaping your business inside and out. Let's talk about a fundamental principle of investing, diversification. One of the most common portfolio constructions is a blend of stocks and bonds. This is because the two asset classes almost always have an inverse correlation, meaning when one goes down, the other goes up. Stocks flourish when the economy is growing, and bond prices typically rise when the economy is in recession. Having that counterbalance usually protects your portfolio, hedging against economic slowdown. Except right now, both stocks and bonds are down. The culprit, our old friend, inflation. Fear that interest rate hikes could lead to a recession have driven many investors to sell, pushing stock prices down. Meanwhile, high interest rates devalue bonds. Both markets are down significantly from the start of 2022. It's a situation we haven't seen since the late 1960s. So, when traditional hedges aren't protecting portfolios, where do you turn? That's where commodities come in. They're unique in their ability to hedge inflation. But commodities are, well, oddities. They're complicated and volatile, affected by everything from weather to war. And they're more than just a hedge. If you can speak the language of commodities, they can give you a much clearer picture of the economy as a whole, in the short term and down the road. So today, we're talking oil, wheat, copper, and cattle, and an asset class that matters to everyone. If you produce commodities, you care. If you consume commodities, you care. By definition, that's already a lot of people. That's our commodities translator, Callum Bruce. Hey, everyone. My name is Callum Bruce. I'm a commodities strategist here in the macroeconomic research department at Goldman Sachs uh, here in New York. You don't sound like most of the New Yorkers I, I know, since a little bit of an accent there. Where are you from? Uh, I suppose I'm from the Bronx. <laughs> no, I'm, I grew up in London, in Southwest London. I've, I've been here for the last four years now and counting, but still enjoying myself. You know, there's that saying, you know, leave New York before you get hard and leave California before you get soft. But uh, so <laughs> maybe I'm coming towards that critical threshold soon. The commodities market might be complicated, the commodities themselves are actually pretty simple. Yeah, so commodities at its heart is something which is homogenous. This bar of copper looks the same in this country or that country. This barrel of oil looks the same here and there. And ultimately, sort of the logic behind it is it allows for easy creation of market. And though each individual commodity is treated as homogenous, the asset class as a whole encompasses a wide variety of things. We divide them into sort of three broad groups. So you have energy, oil, that's your products, your diesel, gasoline, gas, coal, metals. So that's the industrial metals, copper, aluminium, zinc, nickel. Uh, then you have the precious metals, so that's gold, silver, platinum, palladium. And then you have the sort of agricultural markets. The soft, so that's cocoa, coffee, 
the grains, wheat, soybeans, and then you have your live cats on your pork bellies. I've always wondered this, but why with regard to pork, is it a pork belly? I think that's where most of it is. At a, a really fundamental level, they're similar, but it's the individual characteristics of commodities which make them so interesting and also make them a great diversification play because they all have very different sort of exogenous dynamics going on. These exogenous dynamics can be anything from weather to war. So we like to describe oil as a spot asset, which means, like, just factually speaking already, you are clearing through today's supply and demand fundamentals. So if you've got a big weather shock, that has to be affected in the spot assets today. So you're seeing that in Europe in natural gas markets right now, super warm start to winter. And despite all the concerns about Russian gas, you've got a mega contango at the front of a natural gas curve as it's trying to clear. Whereas equities, fundamentally, you're always looking five years plus into the future. You're always able to kind of, it doesn't matter what quarter to quarter, what's going on in supply and demand. You're always looking further afield. Commodities can be unpredictable, but commodity trading offers stability to both producers and consumers. Again, it's, the whole idea of it is to create a market and to pool liquidity. And in terms of the function it actually offers to the participants itself, I mean, at its real core, it allows producers and consumers to hedge. Yeah, so if I'm a producer putting metal out of the ground and it takes yeah, eight plus years to even build a mine, ideally I'm, I'm able to lock in some of those cash flows today and hedge some of that future production. And it then enables you to kind of you know, de-risk that project and build up that as our sort of investment. Because otherwise, you know, you're, you're best investment under uncertainty and it basically helps markets work better and, and under more certainty. And it's just, and a similar thing on, on the consumption side, you think about, that, about an airline, Ultimately, used to buy tickets sort of three to six months in advance. I mean, it's become a, a lot less upfront nowadays. But you know, these airlines need to think about their costs and sort of and be able to sort of hedge that risk as well. So it's about providing better certainty to investment and having markets work more efficiently. Like most goods, commodities are subject to supply and demand, but there are other factors that determine their prices. You may have heard Callum use the word contango. Contango describes the shape of a commodity's forward curve, or its price over time. The opposite of contango is backwardation. The shape of the curve depends on several factors. How we think about sort of curve-shaping commodities, and this sort of goes back to sort of finance 101, if, if anyone sort of studied that, is it's all about sort of cost of carry. And the cost of carry is a function of two main things. One is, is a sort of the cost of storage, and the other is, is the convenience shield. And these guys are kind of working against each other. So you think about a commodity where you have the storage costs are super high, like natural gas. That's pretty hard to store because the gas has to be compressed, et cetera, et cetera. Those markets tend to be in contango because the cost of storage are so high. So if you look at like a Henry Hub over the last you know, sort of several decades, it's tended to be in that sort of contango shape. On the other hand, is this concept of a convenience shield, which is basically a scarcity premium. This is probably the simplest way to think about it. Is at what price am I willing to pay to really have that commodities on site? And that varies from commodity to commodity. So, for instance, in oil, you've tended to see a backwardation in that market because oil is a continuous process. Your, your refinery needs to continue running. You do not want to stop that refinery. It's a very fragile piece of kit. So you're willing to pay a pretty high premium for oil today in a tight market, given low stocks, to make sure you have that oil on site so you don't have to shut that refinery down. And think about that to an even higher extreme if you're a jet airline. You can't shut down your airline. And we, there's a reason we saw $200, $300 a barrel jet fuel in New York earlier this year is because that's just an unacceptable outcome. Whereas in the metal space, that, that, that's less true. First of all, 
there's less storage costs. You can store as much copper as you want behind a barbed wire fence of a dog. But also there's less convenience shield as well because you have an ability to stop that manufacturing process. Let's say it's building a house. It's not the end of the world if you delay that house another month down the road. And so you tend to have less of that curved structure dynamics happening in easier to store products like the metals markets, which are more, again, a less continuous process than in the energy space and the agricultural space as well. So you mentioned earlier that commodities can be a good hedge against unexpected inflation. Why is that? What makes commodities a better hedge versus other asset classes? I think the fact is, is ultimately, it's often the cause of unexpected inflation. There are all sorts of complex ways to look at this. And later in the episode, we'll pull apart some of them. But just think of it this way. Inflation is a general increase in prices for goods and services. Commodities are among those goods and often are inputs into those services, as well as manufacturing of other goods. So when inflation goes up, so do commodity prices. It's this direct relationship that makes them a natural hedge. But that's not the only reason. On a really basic level, oil's sheer volatility and commodities' sheer volatility means that it's a more powerful hedge. Now, you can spin it both ways. Yeah, volatility can be a bad thing. But it means the more volatile it is and the more skewed it is to these inflation scenarios, often because it's the cause of the higher inflation, it means I can just put less AUM in there and have the same benefit. I think people have forgotten about really one of the intrinsic reasons for owning commodities over the last 10 years. And why is that Why has that been the case? Well, if you think from 2008 onwards, we've had a couple of recessions. We've had several price wars. We've had a pandemic. We've had one negative shock after another in the commodities world. And I, I speak a lot on oil, ultimately is what I cover, but ultimately it tends to drive the rest of the commodity space via the dollar. So forgive me for speaking too much about oil. I will tell you one thing. I'm in Houston, so you can never talk too much about oil. You can use the oil at every other word in your sentence, you're, you're fine. Yeah, but people have forgotten about the sort of intrinsically positive skew you tend to have to return to the commodity space where ultimately if you run out of storage, you need to have price to destroy demand today. And that's the only sort of positively skewed asset you tend to see historically. And it tends to have offered a diversification benefit. But for the last 10 years, oil has been positively correlated to equity, so it hasn't really offered that portfolio hedge, whereas now we're finally... In a period where we've depleted our main buffers, our spare capacity in stocks, and that's true across any commodity, but also it's binding enough that it's starting to drive our other assets again. So caveat that everybody's personal investment situation is different. And you know this might not be right for all parties, but what role generally would commodities play in an investment strategy? Yeah. So, I mean, over the very long run, commodities return near zero in terms of the flat price. And that's the reason because ultimately equities and bonds, you're, there's always a return on that. There's no return on owning an oil barrel. You know, you're, not, you're not enhancing that and investing and generating a return. You're just holding an asset and taking a risk premium. So in the long run, you know, your asset allocation would say put zero in commodities. But I think what, what's important to understand is the economy goes through many regimes. And the one we're in right now is what we've termed you know, commodity-constrained recession. And in these sort of commodity-constrained recessions, oil offers not just a scarcity return, where the roll returns on owning these commodities, basically in long rolling futures, is significant. It also offers a massive diversification benefit, where even if you don't think the flat price of oil will be maintained over a year or two, the fact is it's so inversely uh, moving versus your equities and your bonds means would warrant at least some allocation. 
To Callum, commodities are overlooked, not just by investors, by everybody. It depends on the investor, so I, I, I don't want to comment on exact numbers. But to give you an idea of where we are today, we only have 50 billion of spec length in commodities versus 150 pre-war. That is barely above the April 2020 lows, despite a much, much tighter environment with incredibly worrying forward dynamics, especially when it comes to the sanctions on Russia. That compares to 300, 400, maybe 500 trillion of global wealth, depending on how you define it. Yeah, so what I, I mean, I'm trying to do the mental maths there, that's like sub 0.1% of global portfolios. Yeah, I don't know what I don't know what the real weight should be, but it's probably a bit higher uh, than that <laughs> on a theoretical basis. So you're you're seeing this this is an opportunity for investors then right now? Uh, I'd say so. First of all, in this in flat price terms, like we we remain underinvested, and commodity prices in general need to be higher to balance markets over the next three to five plus years. But secondly, in, in terms of in terms of return, you've got such tight spot markets and really underinvested futures markets that you've really got this very high convexity in the curve right now, and which actually makes it more compelling to some degree to go long the front than long the back end. Although our conviction for the back end being too low is very high. This is a particularly important moment to focus on commodities because as Callum alluded to, we're entering a period of supply constraint. Within these sort of larger political cycles is these supply cycles. Yeah, so these are, tends to be the eight to 15 year cycles of underinvestment. And they are always slow processes. So it was very lagged. And that's natural, yeah, because it just takes eight years plus to build a mine. And it takes a conventional oil, you know, pre-shale, five plus years maybe to do some sort of tiebacks, et cetera. And we've come to an end of that sort of period of that investment. And now we're starting to go into that phase again where we've got a structural lack of projects coming online. And that's normal because other parts of the economy had better returns. You're investing in tech instead. And there's a reason why... The 1970s was preceded by the Nifty 50 bubble of the 1960s and why the 2000s was preceded by the dot-com bubble is you're just investing elsewhere, better returns. You know, before this year, the S&P energy was the worst performing sector in nine out of 10 years. So that's normal. What is worrying this time was a lack of investment. We are seeing severe warning signs across commodity spaces and, and a lack of buffers and spare capacity in stocks across many different commodities. We're not seeing the increase in CapEx and we're not seeing the increase in equity prices required. So the CapEx, yes, you're up year on year, but you are 50% below 2019 levels. And that's true across metals and, and the energy space. But that in turn is 50% below 2014 levels. The sort of level of investment you need to come out of these and into an oversupplied market again. We're nowhere close. So you think about what's happening in the Fed right now, that is ultimately a symptom of the underlying issues of investment. That ultimately the Fed can hike all it wants. And yes, it can try and crush demand today, but the economy is going to want to naturally grow. And we can live in this sort of demand destruction regime where you have high and volatile prices. But if you want lower prices and stable prices, you need supply growth. And the Fed can't print oil. Yeah, So it has limited sort of tools at its disposal to kind of resolve these regimes. And that's one of the issues right now is we're not seeing, despite higher prices and flashing rate signals, we're not seeing the signs of increased investment and capex and rig counts and higher equity valuations and upstream producers required to get comfortable with, with where this market's going. As we eventually emerge from inflation and the need for a hedge decreases, you may not be relying on commodities in your investment portfolio, but there's still a reason to pay attention to them. 
For one, certain commodities can be a strong indicator for the economy. The dollar-oil correlation, which, again, if you just pull up on Bloomberg, is a pretty clear relation, we think has actually has two parts. So first of all, is the classic correlation from the dollar to oil. So that means like the price of a dollar has gone up. So I think global financial crisis or Fed having to hike more than anyone. So that's really what's happening right now. And so what that does ultimately is that inflates the price of commodities in your local currency terms. Yeah, so think about someone buying commodities in Brazilian real or Indian rupees. So it ultimately limits the level of demand at a given US dollar per barrel or per ton commodity price, and that weakens demand in those markets. So it also means that US dollar price also has to go down. So you tend to see an inverse correlation between strong dollar and weaker commodities. So that correlation is still roughly the same today. But what has changed is the inverse correlation. That's the correlation from oil to the dollar. So if you think about this historically speaking, if you had an exogenous event now in the oil space due to a war in the Middle East, historically, that would lead to a weakening dollar. Why? Because the US is a big, big net importer of oil. So the price of oil goes up, you're sending more dollars abroad. Those dollars are going to the Middle East and they're recycling those dollars into the European euro dollar system because it's buying goods, clothes, whatever have you. So that's depressing the dollar. But now that's kind of changed. And why has that happened is the US is now a net exporter of not just oil, but also gas and coal. So now um, your main importers now are China and India. And so when the price of oil goes up, yeah, China and India are having to buy more dollars to buy oil. And it's sending those dollars to Saudi Arabia. And Saudi's not reinvesting those dollars into the euro dollar banking system now. Saudi Arabia and the UAE, their vision 2030, big infrastructure goals. So now they're recycling those dollars and buying other commodities. They're investing. And so you're not seeing that weakening dynamic on the dollar of when the Middle Eastern states recycle those dollars back into the banking system. And so that's been an interesting change recently where even pre the Russia war in 2021, as oil prices normalized and very much against consensus expectations, you saw a very strong dollar over 2021. And we think part of that is related to this dynamic where it really was actually an oil story which is driving the dollar higher. And that relationship is inverted over time, which has been really interesting. That's a pretty significant shift. Is that going to continue? Or is that going to, what kind of cycle would we be looking at? Or is that something that flips back fairly quickly? Yeah, no, so, I mean, as long as the US is a net exporter and China and India are net importers, which given their resources is going to be for a while. And yeah, this, again, the Saudi UAE Vision 2030, yeah, this is this is decades of, of infrastructure investment. So that's that really is a sort of, a permanent shift. And as we move into the future, commodities won't just tell the story, they'll be part of it. So it's interesting, we talk about oil and energy commodities. It seems like they're very important and they're, they're affecting things right now, but we're also seeing a shift away from fossil fuels. Are you starting to see that in the markets? And how is that going to affect as we shift away from fossil fuels? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, in the energy space, obviously, it's long-term negative and bearish demand. But in the short term, it's bullish supply. And net, it ends up being bullish over the next few years. Because if you think about how slow the demand dynamics are, you're really only leading to large demand impacts by maybe the end of this decade, if you're lucky. So a stat which always blows my mind is for every million EVs you have on the road, you're destroying oil demand by 15 KBD. Yeah, so that is 1.5 basis points of global demand. 
if we're lucky, we, we're going to sell 75 million EVs a year by 2030, 2035, which will be, if you just do the maths, that's as 100 basis points, 1% of global demand, 1 million barrels a day of oil demand being destroyed per year. But with oil, you have an inherent supply discipline, which is enforced by geological decline rates, which mean on the supply side, I'm declining four times more than that per year. Yeah, so on no time horizon in the next 20 years, am I destroying oil demand quickly enough? I don't need new investments. And it's those new investments which are getting ever more expensive because we are completely cutting exploration capex. And we're not looking for oil anywhere. You know, last year, we found at least oil in 100 years. But I need my entire oil forward curve to be at a level where I'm incentivizing that new investment. We can't just rest on our decline rates and rest on our laurels and just live on half-cycle economics for the rest of our days. We're always going to need new oil for the next 20 years, and it's not clear where that's going to come from. And you can see that, in, for instance, in Norway. Yeah, Norway is already living in 2050. 75% of its, of its car sales are EVs. And you look at a Norwegian oil demand, it's flat. It hasn't changed for the last 10 years, which is pretty shocking. People call it the Norway paradox. So that's happening you know, on a much longer time horizon. But in the short term, given this inherent supply discipline, and not looking for projects today, I'm losing supply on a three, four, five-year time horizon. So that's been, I think, the issue with the approach to ESG so far is it's been very focused on the supply side and not enough on demand. You need to make sure you're on that right trajectory first before you start stopping oil investment or, for instance, closing coal plants and, and gas plants in Europe before batteries are ready, before soda's ready, before wind's ready. You do need that redundancy in place to add resiliency to your system. As technology evolves, we'll need to invest in different commodities, which can present real opportunities to the observant. And then on the metal side, which is, I mean, it's, it's double bullish. Yeah, It's bullish your, your supply side because no one wants to build any mines. Um, and it takes eight years plus to build a mine. But on the demand side, if you look at where this stuff is going, I mean, copper is your, your most conductive, abundant material on Earth. It's going to be impossible to displace. If you want to electrify everything, you're going to need a lot of copper and a lot of aluminium and a lot of nickel. You know, if you have 10 to 20 times as much copper in alley in an EV car versus a nice car, and you have 10 to 20 times as much copper in alley per megawatt hour of solar and wind power than versus a gas or coal plant, which is basically just steel. Yeah, we've only got enough lithium and cobalt for maybe enough EVs for the US only at present. I mean, we're assuming that's going to get resolved, and I'm, I'm, sh I'm sure that will, but there's a huge demand pull there. The increase in lithium and cobalt demand you're going to see over, over the next decade hasn't been seen in commodity markets since the early, early days of the oil market. With so many factors at play, you'll need help navigating the world of commodities. That's what portfolio managers and people like Callum are for. But learning the language of commodities can be well worth the effort. So it sounds like it, it can be somewhat intimidating for, for an investor who's never been in commodities, it, it would seem. So on that topic, I think it's quite interesting because... You're getting, you're getting a lot of generalists now starting to refocus on commodities and some of the clients to speak to who used to cover commodities and are now we're trying to look at it again now. And, and the feedback is like, I just forgot how tough a space is to follow. There's so much going on. Like You can't just look at commodities as a side hobby. It's like a full-time job. You actually need to keep on top of what's happening in Libya, Iran and Iraq, whereas rates and equities to some degree, it's, it's the economy and it's about what central bank policy and to some degree you're able to to leave it at that, but the commodities, the degree of things you have to follow in the space makes it hard for generalists to follow. But nevertheless, 
oil and you know, commodities as an asset class, you know, you're able to diversify across many commodities. And they, they, the correlation between commodities is, is super low versus the correlation between different subsectors of, for example, equities. So that still offers investors a, a way to have exposure without having to think too much about the dynamics of what's going on with the soybean harvest here or what's going on with Libya and Haftar and oil, et cetera, et cetera. Commodities are complex. They're affected by everything from geology to geopolitics. For the average investor, they've got a narrow use case. But that complexity offers opportunity. Commodities are a powerful alternative in a moment when options are limited. They're currently underinvested, and we're entering a period that may see even more supply constraints across important sectors. Commodities are telling a story. You just have to know how to listen. Thank you to Callum Bruce, Commodities Analyst at Goldman Sachs, for speaking our language. We're halfway through our season, and we've taken a little break over the Thanksgiving holidays. So far, we've been discussing outside forces shaping the business landscape and our economy. When we come back, we're headed inside your business to explore the evolution of leadership, a case study on culture, and strategies to get talent and keep it. That's all still to come on this season of In Good Companies. In Good Companies is a podcast from Cadence Bank, member FDIC, equal opportunity lender. Sheena Cochran is our production coordinator. Our executive producer is Danielle Cornell, with writing and production from Andrew Ganim and sound design and mixing by Ben Cranell at Lower Street Media. I'm your host, Patrick Pacheco. If you made it this far, why don't you go rate and review us in your podcast app? It's the best way to grow the show so we can reach even more listeners. And while you're there, subscribe. We'd love to have you because when you're with us, we're in good companies. This podcast is provided as a free service to you and is for general informational purposes only. Cadence Bank and its affiliates make no representation or warranties as to the accuracy, completeness, or timeliness of the content in the podcast. The podcast is not intended to provide legal, accounting, or tax advice and should not be relied upon for such purposes. To the extent that this podcast includes predictions about the economy, these predictions are subject to a number of variables and you should confer with your legal, accounting, and tax advisors for their input regarding the possible outcomes of any economic subject matter discussed herein. Predictions are forward-looking statements that reflect current views with respect to, among other things, future events. Forward-looking statements are not historical facts and are based on current expectations, estimates, and projections, many of which, by their nature, are inherently uncertain and beyond the control of any person or entity. Accordingly, please be aware that any such forward-looking statements are not guarantees and are subject to risks, assumptions, and uncertainties that are difficult to predict. The views and opinions expressed by the host and guests in this podcast are solely their own current opinions regarding the subject matter discussed in the podcast and are based on their own opinions. Such views, perspectives, and opinions do not reflect those of Cadence Bank or any of its affiliates or the companies with which any guest is or may be affiliated. The production and presentation of this podcast by Cadence Bank does not imply the expressions of any opinion on the part of Cadence Bank or any of its affiliates.